Hello and welcome everyone. I am Jake Wurzak and this is Masters of Moments. This podcast features conversations with the top entrepreneurs and business leaders around hospitality, real estate, investing, and company building. We explore the ideas, strategies, and approaches that brought them to where they are today. Hear the insights, behind the scenes secrets, and methods you can't find anywhere else. This podcast is for you if you are a seasoned investor, an upstart entrepreneur, or someone looking to break into the real estate and hospitality investing world. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at jwerzak on Twitter. And if you have enjoyed this show, I'd be incredibly grateful if you followed us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you listen to. We record on video, so you can always find all of our episodes on YouTube and be sure to subscribe. Thank you so much for joining me and enjoy the show. My conversation today is with Dev Matwani, managing partner at Merrimack Ventures. Dev and I have been friends for some time. He is really big in real estate down here in South Florida, and he's also getting into some other really exciting projects throughout the country. We talked about everything from growing up in the family hotel business by literally living in these hotels in Fort Lauderdale Beach, moving to New York City, and then coming back to work with his family and eventually leading the firm and growing it into a very, very large real estate player throughout the country, but heavily focused in South Florida, in condos, hospitality, multifamily, land, other experiential investments. We talk about partnerships, how he is creating investment structures to be held for the long term. Please enjoy my conversation today with Dev Matwani. Dev, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Awesome. I thought a really good place to start would be for you to kind of break down how you got into the real estate business and the hotel business, because it's a non-traditional story and it's pretty inspiring. Sure. Happy to, happy to go through that. So, you know, grew up living in a motel in Fort La- on Fort Lauderdale Beach that our parents bought in the mid eighties. So traditional, typical Indian story. Parents were immigrants from India, started a business actually outside of St. Louis. That's where I was born, my brother and I but then bought a motel on Fort Lauderdale Beach, mid 80s, prime spring break. And we lived in it and we operated it. So I didn't really know what was going on. I I knew I had a pool outside (laughs) and the beach was across the street and it all seemed pretty cool. But, you know, it was a combination of a hospitality play, you know, operating business, but then also long-term real estate play. But we lived in it. We operated it. Our living room was connected to the front desk. My brother and I would have to, you know, pause our video games to go check people in and negotiate rates at while we were eight years old and, you know, all kinds of child labor laws violated. But, uh, but, you know, we're, uh, we're past the statute of limitations on that. So mom's fine, (laughs) but that's, that's how we grew up. And it was, it was a cool upbringing, but my parents worked really hard and we were 24 seven. And so, uh, you know, my dad unfortunately passed away when we were in high school. My mom took over. She was already working with him in the business, but then she took over the whole thing. And so we saw how hard she had to work. Nitin and I, Nitin was my brother, he's also my business partner. We went off to college. We both went to Duke. We said, there's got to be an easier way. We don't want to be back in Florida. We don't want to be back in, in real estate as we, you know, thought of it. Cause, you know, re- we thought real estate was running these motels. And so we went off to New York got into investment banking. He went to Goldman. I went to Credit Suisse, both doing derivatives and just basically were, were kind of writing off moving home. And then 
one day our mom calls and says, Hey, I'm coming to New York next week. I got a meeting. Can you get off for lunch? And we were like, what kind of meeting could you have? You're running <laughs> motels in Fort Lauderdale. And she says, well, I have lunch with Donald Trump. I thought you'd want to join. And so that's when we realized there was something different to the quote unquote family business beyond you know running these motels, the real estate component, the development opportunity for some of the land we own. And so he and I both decided to, to come back. But before that, we both stopped at Columbia, did their master's in real estate development. So we got to really learn the institutional side of the business and the more formal side of the business. But I always say the the money we make isn't you know a function of that or it's it's because of what we learned growing up in the business and watching our parents really roll up their sleeves and, and operate, you know, from the ground up. Do you think your parents had an insight that the real estate was going to be valuable? Or did they just say, hey, I'm going to buy this thing and I can operate because I'm nice and I'm hospitable and we'll see what happens? Or or was there some like longer goal that they had at the time? You know, I think my dad originally said, if we're going to do this, we got to be on the beach. I want to be in the game. So he understood location, 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 which is obviously the, you know, the premise of, of real estate or, or a premise of, of buying good real estate. And I don't know that he thought we would develop it and never thought we would see a four seasons, let alone we would be the ones to develop it. But he, even if it was if it was an operating motel, he wanted to be in the middle of the game, the best location. And for development land purposes, he knew that that was also you know a benefit. Now, the year after we moved, the city kicked out spring break. And so we didn't choose to be in the development game and have to look for a backup. We were forced into that. And so... Fortunately, because we bought such good real estate, we had that optionality. We, if the motel business stopped working, he knew that there would be a, a re- redevelopment play. So it was always in the, it was always part of the thought, but I don't think he expected it to happen the year after. If he did, we would have waited a year and bought it on the cheap, right? <laughs> instead of the top of the market. But he still knew to buy it on the beach. I mean, I don't think people that are outside of Florida fully appreciate the business opportunity and the value differential of being on the beach or being in a prime location near the water that that has versus something else. Well, you know, it's interesting because you're exactly right. And we, we now see that, but that's because we have a luxury market down here where you can get that, that premium for that luxury buyer that wants the absolute best location, which in this case is on the ocean or, or ocean facing. But back then in the mid 80s and, in, in, you know, Fort Lauderdale luxury didn't exist. It was right. a spring break town. So so you had to have a hope or a vision that eventually, you know, the market would get there. And like I said, it 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 was a forced upon us. I think my parents would have been happy running motels and the cash flow coming from that, at least for a few years. I mean, one year in, we got, you know, hit over the head. But ultimately, it led to a change in Fort Lauderdale and a change in the market that allowed for the development of luxury to actually get that premium that we've seen now with the four seasons where we've, you know, set records in terms of pricing uh, for the sale of our residential product. Going to an Ivy League school is great and getting that education is great, but you can always kind of tell when someone has that entrepreneurial bent or grew up in a certain business, what were some of the things that you learned that gave you a competitive edge as you're looking at your peers or you were seeing other people also starting out in real estate from the institutional side? Yeah, I I think the work ethic uh, of watching our parents just work nonstop 
I, no matter how hard I work, I, I never have to work with as hard as they did or as or have that stress that they had because, you know, fortunate that we get to stand on the shoulders of, and of their work. So, but th- that was a big differentiator. I think running the motels and like from the ground up, which meant that we had to do every job. And so you, 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 it, there's a lot of humility. It sounds cool to, oh, you own this property, but like when you're owning it and you're operating it, I mean, the, you know, the desk clerk doesn't show up. You're checking people in. Maid doesn't show up. You're making rooms. Maintenance, someone's TV goes out at night. You know, you're changing that TV because your maintenance guy's gone. I, I back problems to this day, I think, from lugging around tube TVs, you know, <laughs> at, at, at night. And so, they weren't five panels back then. So, <laughs> so I, I think just, you know, having that grit that comes with living in that environment has lasted for both my brother and I, and that's that's helped. And yeah, you know, we, I always joke with people. I say, you know, we, we paid all this money for these educations and, you know, we had made great relationships, certainly got built great networks, but ultimately that's a you know piece of paper on the wall. Real estate, you know, is rolling up your sleeves and, and, you know, and figuring out certainly on the development side. And that's what we had to do. And we had to watch our parents get into the development side, not by choice, but by necessity, as I said earlier, because the motel business didn't work anymore because of changes in the market. So they had to, my mom had to explore those, those opportunities and figure it out. I had, um, Jay Shaw from Hersha on mm-hmm. the podcast recently, and I've never had someone so perfectly put this kind of idea and that's transitioning what he called a family enterprise to an institutional real estate firm. And I'm curious to know, like, what were some of the challenges that you faced early on? taking what was definitely a family, smaller business and bringing that institutional mindset and approach, but still maintaining some of the values that were important? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, and we still, we still have that feeling and we still fight that push-pull on a daily basis because we want to be family-oriented. We want to you know, feel team-oriented. We want to be like entrepreneurial, but at the same time, hard to do that when you're dealing with large institutions who expect a certain amount of reporting and and things that that you know you take for granted when you're young and scrappy or you're small and scrappy you don't you know need to do you know you know where the money's going because you're signing every check i still sign every check in our business and so unless we have a third-party management company but from a development perspective you know certainly buying assets like i'm writing every check so so we still we still fight that battle i think Growing is hard when you have that family business mindset because you're taught to, you have to watch every penny and, you know, and, and especially like running motels, you had to be very mindful of that. And you also had to work and do every job. So you're not used to hiring people and, uh, and, you know, and, and building out uh, infrastructure and teams. So that's been harder. My brother has been, is much better at that. He's a much better manager. He's much better at running an organization because he had to build out a team to build Miami World Center, which is the large project we did in Miami. We had a big institutional capital partner, CIM, and he as the managing partner had to build that whole team and infrastructure that was institutional in nature. And so him now finishing that project and coming back full time into Merrimack Ventures, our family business, has been a huge help because 
he's much better at, at seeing kind of the long term and you know and hiring and seeing where we need to you know put people in and and really build out that infrastructure so we still fight that battle uh internally on a daily basis that's the wrong phrase we don't fight that battle but there's that you know you live with it uh yeah well again because we don't want to become a fully institutional shop we think that there's a lot of benefits for our employees to work in a family-oriented business i mean it really is you know kind of a that's kind of easier to have that team feeling when you have that kind of that feeling uh, of of being a family business. So we like and, and certain entrepreneurial components of that, being able to pivot and go towards deals that may be out of our out of our traditional comfort zone, but that we want to take a risk on. Like those are all the benefits that come with, you know, being a little smaller and scrappier. But then at the same time, we got to think about, you know, growing. And in order to do that, you need the right size team. How did you think about mentors as you were coming up, maybe looking to learn from others? Your brother was doing the same thing, so you couldn't really learn from him. He was doing it while you were doing it. How did you think about mentors and what did you learn from some of those people? Man, I had some great people. I mean, the one thing that I loved about the real estate business is, you know, usually people were willing to, you know, take a call or, you know, a cold call or an email and and meet with you or chasing people on conferences after, you know, after panels. So I had a great experience with mentors along the way. Terry Styles was was an amazing one. I'll tell you a great story. Uh, this was one of the last business conversations we had. And Terry was also, you know, personal family friend and Kenny, his son is still one of my best friends. But uh, I was bought a site and Terry had had the Alluvion site and then he bought what's now Novo. And I, I, I said to him, I said, Terry, you're going to do both of those deals, you know, basically back to back at the same time. Like that's a lot of, lot of units. And he just looked at me and said, you know, Dev, sometimes you just got to have balls. <laughs> and I, I was like, all right. I mean, so, you know, it, and, and, but I know Terry's a smart, thoughtful guy and he knew the market well, and both of those are super successful deals and the market could handle the inventory, but it was a risk, you know, and, and that, that he was, he was willing to take. And so, you know, I don't think he was a complete gunslinger, but, you know, taught me like, okay, yeah. maybe sometimes I got to look to the future when you're looking at a market and not just the past. And so he was great. Jim Mata was a great one. Harry Posen, you know, just there's so many, uh, Phil Smith, who's, who's unfortunately no longer with us, just great. And not all were in real estate. Some of the, you know, the, these guys were just business guys like Phil Smith were willing to talk just about career. And, you know, about the trials and tribulations and the challenges that they went through, you know, in their life. And you see all the guys I mentioned are very successful, but, you know, hearing that they struggled and they went through challenging times made it easier to get through some challenging times or, you know, or always kind of look towards that. Think about that light at the end of the tunnel and not necessarily, you know, darkness that's right in front of you. So I was very fortunate that to have people, you know, willing to you know, give me their time and, and their, be honest with their, you know, their, their challenges and, and how they got through things. So I'm very much appreciative to them. And, and there's many others that I'm, that I'm not naming right now, but like I said, I was very fortunate to have people give me their time. I think what Terry said is probably the real definition of being an entrepreneur because <laughs> that's, that's it. Like sometimes you just get the feeling in your gut and you have to go for it. And when I've seen some of the projects that you've done, they haven't all been exactly the same. And they've been ones that you needed to be humble. There's been ones that you needed to be aggressive. It's a very different approach from being institutional. 
Yeah, I mean, that's I guess that's how we've been able to compete with some of the you know, the bigger players is to be a, a little more flexible or take a little more risk. So you mentioned mentors, Joel Altman, always been great at giving me time, but you know, he told me not to close on my Dania site. And, and now it's 340 units. We finished it. It's leasing up great. Rents are through the roof. And so it's proven out. But I, you know, I bought that site, I think, in 2016 or 2017. So the good news in real estate is eventually you'll be, you should be Time right. Heals all wounds. Uh, you just have to, you have to be able to last and make it. And so I don't know that he was wrong, but you know, he, in fact, in some ways he was right. It did take longer than I thought, but the, the model proved out. And now we've got a very successful deal there. But I was able to get that site and compete because none of the merchant builders, none of the institutional guys were willing to go and take that early bet and wait that long. And we were willing to, you know, to, to do that. So when your mom had that meeting with Trump, did you end up going? We did. Yeah. So we went to Trump Tower and we actually had lunch with Don Jr., but we met with Donald that day as well. And that's now the Conrad Hilton on Fort okay. Beach. So most people don't know that was originally intended. That was the first Conrad Hilton was our first project. But when we originally signed the deal, it was going to be a Trump International. And uh, and that's the property that we grew up on. That's where the Merrimack was. And so um, so that was our that was our first big deal. And my mom went and got that entitled and approved without a land use attorney. She just rolled into the city hall with a roll of plans and said, I need to get this approved. And she went, got a unanimous vote, which in that those days you didn't get in Fort Lauderdale. Uh, certainly not on Fort Lauderdale Beach, but she got that project approved. And then we brought in some development partners who we co-developed it with and really learned the business, selling condos, structuring hotel deals, obviously building the thing and then watching what happened in the crash and our blender fails. And, you know, it's like, you know, all kinds of challenges. So, so we learned the good, the bad and, uh, and the ugly through that, through that. But yeah, we were at the meeting with her. Funny enough, I, I saw Trump at a, at a, wedding at friend's wedding in Mar-a-Lago and happened to end up standing next to him. So I said, yeah, I reintroduced myself yeah. and this is, we met him before the apprentice, you know, before, certainly before politics. So right. he was a big figure in, in, in New York, real, New York real estate and he was well known, but his celebrity has gone to a much larger level now. So I reintroduced myself and then remind him that, you know, we were partners in Fort Lauderdale and he walked around the room and said hi to everyone. And I could tell he probably didn't remember who I was, you know, was cordial, but yeah, I could see in his eyes that it was, didn't ring a bell, but something rang a bell. Cause as he was finished his lap around the room, he came back up to me and he walks right up to me and he points to me and he says, your mother, tough negotiator. And, uh, and walks out of the room. And the funny part was the people I was standing with when that happened, they didn't, they weren't with me when I first said hi. So they had no idea why he just came up to me and decided to tell me that my mother was a tough negotiator. But he remembered yep. when we were, had that meeting and she was, you know, we controlled the deal. And so she, you know, made sure she got the deal she wanted. There's always a good Trump story. Um, <laughs> that's a good one. So the the start of that process, I think, really kickstarted your company because it was an approach that many landowners might not have taken. A lot of people in your mom's position might have just sold the land and gotten out of it. And you, she wanted to stay in the deal. What about being in the deal was important for you and your family as a way to start doing other things? You know, it's, it's a good question. It's probably a little bit of it may have been sentimental, 
you know, there was, there was a vision that she and my father shared when they acquired that block. So we owned a, we acquired a full city block in pieces. Uh, that's what we allowed for the large development. So probably a little bit of it was sentimental. It was also, you know, we, the original, the origin of that deal was that Hilton came to my mom and we, she cut a deal to sell it to them and they were going to develop it. They couldn't get the entitlements because the politics were so hard in town. Really? So they walked from the deal. They also had some internal stuff going on where, you know, Hilton and Marriott were getting out of the real estate right. business. So they handed her the set of plans as, you know, when they terminated the contract. And she said, why the next time someone comes to me, I want to have approved projects so that I just, you know, do a deal. So, so she went and got it approved. And then people started showing up because here's this lady that has an approved project, oceanfront, you know, and, and had gotten entitlements no one had ever gotten before. And so she realized she created a lot of value in doing that and not just certainty, but also value. And so I think she uh, said, well, you know, I want to learn what you do and I want to stay, stay involved. And in fact, a lot of people, a lot of the d- developers that came to us insisted or wanted us, asked us to be involved because they knew that the politics would continue to be challenging and having a local partner with a good reputation and relationships was important. So that taught us that the reputation and relationships that we have uh, are extremely important. And then we, as we understood the pro forma and the business side of it, we said, well, this is a good investment. So why wouldn't we stay in, you know? And so we learned uh, a lot through that process as a result. So now fast forwarding, that deal's done. What asset classes do you start to focus on and why? Obviously hotels, there's an affinity there, but I know there's other asset classes that you did very early on. Why did you do that? It, it was, so a lot of it was by necessity and then also just oper- that's where the opportunity was. So coming out of the Great Recession, when I started looking at deals, I didn't, you know, hotels were a little further behind in recovery. So there wasn't like hotel, hotels are still struggling. There was no debt out there really for any asset class. So I looked around and I just said, well, what's trading? And, and a couple of deals had traded for land for apartments. So I said, okay, I'm going to focus on land that I think are good apartment sites. And uh, at that time I was focusing on land because A, we had gone through an entitlement process a couple at that point. And so knew that we understood that process, good relationships, good reputation locally. It was just now we were looking at a different asset class. So, and and the banks didn't want land coming out of the Great Recession and they had a lot of it on their balance sheet. So they were willing to get rid of it at good deals. And so, but in order to buy that, you needed all cash. And so I was fortunate. I met a couple high net worth investors who basically backed me in a fund where we went and bought all these deals from the banks. And I said, I'll just figure out what's the highest and best use. It was all guesswork in 2011. Nobody was building anything. So it was all just, you know, guess and hope for the best. And and fortunately, Florida came back faster. All asset classes really came back faster than we had anticipated. But the, the first deals we did were focused on multifamily. So I had to learn that business. And then we started selling land to multifamily developers. Then as I learned that business, I liked it. So then I'd say, okay, well, now I'm entitling the deals. So so just like my mom did, I said, okay, now I'll partner with you. And then I really liked the apartment business. And so now as my brothers come back in, we're building those, you know, ourselves. So apartments have become a big part of our business, but we're also, we're doing condos. So we have a number of condo development deals and that's driven 
by the site, you know, if a site makes sense, if it's oceanfront, waterfront, or, you know, in downtown Miami, we have sites that are great condo sites that we're doing. So that's, that's also a large part of our business. And then also still do hotels. Many of the hotels we're doing at Merrimack in house are more mixed use oriented luxury that have, you know, a condo component, a re- you know, branded residential component in addition to the hotel. And then we have partners like uh, at Driftwood Hospitality, where we kind of do more of our traditional, you know, three and a half to four and a half star development and acquisitions. When you did that first land deal, how did you raise the capital? Because you kind of glossed over that, but it's not easy to raise capital and to find investors for your first deal, especially when you're just saying, it's a good site and I don't know what I'm going to do with it, but we're going to do something. How, how did you do that? So the first big deal was that it closed was the Lost Holes Riverfront site. So it was actually, for many years, it was my By the biggest. way, that's a huge deal. That's <laughs> not was, like a big deal. That's a huge deal. It, it, it was. And, and so I was very fortunate to have people believe in me because I was young and hadn't done anything on my own at that time. But what happened was that, so the, the guys that ultimately became my LPs in that deal and many others I met them because I actually, we competed on another deal on the beach and they outbid me and they outbid me because they had their own cash and I needed to, you know, find investors. And I had one I was talking to and he kind of went a different route. And so I was kind of left without backing. And so I lost the deal to them and I was able to meet them later on. They actually reached out to us and these were finance guys. They weren't real estate guys. They were from Canada they just knew that things were cheap in Florida, but they didn't know, you know, real estate. And so I helped them with their project. I gave them ideas and, and you know, did it to build a relationship. But also, you know, they asked, why are you giving us your plan? Like, we now own it. And, and I told them, I said, you can't execute on this plan. You can't get this approved. You're not going to understand the nuances, you know, of the zoning. It was challenge zoning. There was historic designation. There was a lot of challenges with the site. So I was lucky that they, that they bought a, you know, they, they bought a pig that, you know, I could you know, make work. And so once they realized that and they appreciated the 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 candor and and realized I knew what I was talking about, they then came and said, okay, let's go buy more stuff. And so I happened to know Riverfront was for sale. I showed it to them and they knew it because they had houses here and been coming here and they knew the asset. And they said, yeah, let's go do it. That seems cheap. So it, you know, and sometimes it's nice to have out of town in, investors in the uh, out of market, I should say investors, because they can look at it from a different lens than you are locally. So locally, everyone thought I overpaid because they knew what other people were bidding and, you know, and you couldn't develop it at that right. time and you were going to have to hold it for years. And, and, you know, so in a model, it looked like we overpaid. But in their minds, they was like, this is great dirt and we're getting it at a fraction of what we could have gotten it for a few, just a few years ago. Why wouldn't we buy? So, and, 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 you know, and they were willing to wait to develop it if it took time. And so it was very fortunate of having the right capital partner for that for that deal because an institutional partner if I had that doesn't matter how great our relationship is they never would have taken that risk because the timing was uncertain. I also think an institutional partner never would have listened to you on the deal that they bought. They would have still just grinded through and tried to get it done themselves and not listen to the guy that they were bidding against. And kudos to you for having that abundance mindset to be willing to share what your plan and strategy was without necessarily getting anything in return 
immediately and it worked out well. Well, thanks. I mean, I, I don't know that it was like, it wasn't intentional, like it just worked out that way, but you know, that's just how our family operated. You know, that's how my mom had always been. Other developers would come to her from out of town when they were coming in and ask for advice or support on their projects. And she's always willing to do that because she wanted to help other people and help the market. So we, we always had a different mindset. And like, I think that, you know, we're Hindu and I believe in karma. So I guess, you know, I don't do it for something to come back to you, but I think the, you know, universe does reward you. I agree. When you, when, when you operate that way. 100%. What were some of the key characteristics of the land sites that you were looking for? Because you didn't have a plan. So I guess what I'm asking is like, what are some of the things that you're looking at from a zoomed out level to know, like, I don't know what I'm going to do, but this is a good site. So, yeah, I don't know that I was intentional about this, but the way that it worked out was pretty much every site we bought was on a, on a, had great visibility. Even the stuff we bought out in like West Broward and Pembroke Pines, like we bought a site, it was on University Drive. We bought the land right at 95 in Broward. So you had great visibility, you know, and great traffic flow. The Pembroke Pines deal ended up being apartments. Broward 95 ended up being industrial and storage. So also two new asset classes to us, but they all had great visibility. So really just great dirt. And then we'd figure out the appropriate asset class to go on top of that dirt. Because if you got traffic and you got visibility, eventually something, you know, will go there. And obviously you had to look at zoning and what's allowed. And in, in those two cases, we had to rezone the property, but we rezoned it to an, a use that was appropriate for the location. It wasn't like I was trying to put, you know, a commercial building in a, in a residential area. In one case, it was on a border between commercial and residential, so it could go either way. Right. And so it was appropriate in the case of the 90 Brower 95 deal you know, industrial, you know, required a little bit different use instead of B3, it was B2 or something, you know, something of that nature. So it wasn't like a big leap per se. We bought a great site on the beach in Pompano that we're going to launch a condo on shortly. That was zoned commercial, but we were, everything around us was residential. So we changed that zoning to residential, which was actually more in line with our neighbors and how it should have been zoned. So, you know, it was creating that consistency. That's a cool deal. So like Pompano on the beach here in Florida, I think it was two sites. It was one on the beach and then one across the street from the beach, right? Correct. Yeah. And did you JV to do the multifamily or did you sell it? How did that component work out? So in that case, I actually bought the site out of my fund from my my partner. At that point, I, I owned it in the fund, but we had bought out the other investor. So myself and one of the investors were the only partners left. So I asked him if he wanted to participate in the development. He didn't at that time, at that moment. So I bought it out at market value, brought in Alliance Residential to be my co-GP. We brought Carlisle in to be our LP. And that was really one of the first big institutional deals that we did. And it's one of the only institutional institutional apartment deals on the barrier island anywhere in South Florida. I think there's one or two others, maybe. So it was a it was a cool deal. Alliance great development partner. Carlisle was a great LP. We you know, created a lot of value there. But my, my land partner and I still own the oceanfront site, which is approved for 92 condos. We're getting ready to launch later this year. But when we built the apartments across the street, the cool thing about the site was two acres on the ocean, across the street, four acres on the intercoastal. 
And so both were waterfront sites, but right across the street from each other. So we built 27 boat slips uh, with the apartments. I kept those as part of the deal with the condo site across the street. So now when I'm selling 92 condos, I get to sell boat slips with it. And how cool is that? You know, you get to own an oceanfront condo, but have your boat slip right out back, which is... Yeah, I can't name one condo building in South Florida that has that. That's pretty unique. Very unique, yeah. So, and then that was always my thought was that, you know, you're going to get people where they're trying that dichotomy. That's the, you know, the, you know, always the question here, do you live on the ocean in a condo or do you live on a house on the water so you can have your boat out back? Yep. And, and so here we're going to have the best of both worlds. And oh, by the way, we've got no fixed bridges. And in five minutes, you're off of, you know, Hillsborough Inlet fishing. So I think we're going to have a, a lot of success with that. What did you learn from doing the deal with an institutional LP and also a very institutional multifamily developer? So they're extremely IRR driven and I'm nothing wrong with that. But what I learned was that it has a much different mindset in, in terms of timing and value creation and how they approach things. And so what I mean by that is, you know, they are in the deal to get in and out. And, and again, I'm not saying that in a bad way. That's the nature of their capital and that's the nature of their business and how they're set up. We have been longer term owners of, of land or of assets because as a family, we find that we can create more value over time. There's also a lot of friction and transaction costs when you're selling. There's also a lot of tax consequences. The institutions aren't really focused on that because a lot of their, their LPs and investors aren't taxpayers, you know, their pension funds or their, you know, you know, insurance companies that have different tax status. So, so what I learned was that my outlook, the things that we think about as a, as a family business were much different and, and not perfectly aligned with how they look at it. Again, we had a great experience. We built, built a great product. We set a record when we sold it for in terms of what we sold per unit. So all great. I signed up for that. I got no, um, no qualms with the deal. But it did change my mindset going forward where I said I, I'd no longer want to do institutional oriented deals. I want to build the same types of assets, but I want to structure it to own long term. And so that's how we've pivoted our business over the last five years. Now, when we have a deal, we'll either bring in you know high net worth friends and family capital or who wants to build and own long term, or we'll bring in a single family office that also has that same mindset so that we can really kind of create that value, but then also keep the asset for the long term. I want to hang there and unpack that a little bit. So like what, I get it that they wanted to get in and get out, but what specific decisions were they making that would be different than things that you might've done taking a more longer term approach yeah. other than just deciding to sell? So for instance, rents were going up significantly while we did our lease up. And so we knew intuitively that meant as we, we stabilized it within a year. So we knew that as we started to roll leases, we were going to able to push rents higher and that would have then created more value at, on the asset. And then we would have been able to sell it for a higher number, but that would require more time. And so while we might have sold it for a bigger number, it might not have changed our IRR. And so, because IRR is not only a function of how much you make, but also over how long of a period you make that. So from my perspective, if I know that I'm going to get higher rents and, and I feel strongly that the market's improving, I want to own that. Even if my IRR is the same, 
because I still have the same transaction costs and friction costs and all the work has been done to develop the asset, I'd rather wait a little bit longer and make a higher multiple. Yep. And so that, that, that there's a difference there, right? And, and so to their point, and again, I'm not, I'm nothing wrong, like bad about it, it's just different. Their point was we already built it. We're hitting what we were exceeding our pro forma and what we thought we would do. So in our minds, this is a, this is a, a home run. This is a great deal. So we should get out of it. We don't want to wait because now waiting, there's also risk. Cap rates could have gone up, you know, rents could have gone down, et cetera. So, so it, it may not have been that we would have made more. I think it was a very good calculated risk to take. And it turns out rents went up way higher. Cap rates went down. We would have made a lot more money and the IRO done way better. But hind- that's hindsight, 2020. What I know is that in that moment, that was a risk that I was willing to take. And it was a risk that they are not set up to take. And so I knew that our interests were were not perfectly aligned. Not to say I w- w- wouldn't do a deal with with institutions. We're still friends with them. Actually, I was in D.C. this week and reached out to uh, the guy at Carlisle who we did the deal with to chat. So we would do another deal, but the interests need to be aligned. And that's when I learned that it's not just how what capital you have, but also the you know the uh, what type of capital you have. So staying on that deal when you're contributing land that's entitled into a partnership, how are you structuring it from your standpoint? Like like a co-GP, like how are you structuring the waterfall so that you're getting promoted, incentivized, whatever it may be? Yeah. So look, each it's each deal is different. You know, it depends on the partner and what their sensitivities are, how long we've owned the land, you know, did we change the zoning? Do we take risk? Or did we just buy something where, you know, it was, you know, we were good timing and, you know, bringing someone in shortly thereafter. So the nature of the deal can change depending on that. But typically, we'll bring someone in after we've already acquired the land, already entitled it. So we've de-risked it. We'll look at what the market value is. And, you know, you should bring them in at a, at a discount to that because we're going to participate on the back end. So we'll both share in that, that, that discount. And then, you know, uh, and then the, the waterfall, I try to do a more simple waterfall um, that, again, is more geared towards, you know, multiples and aligned with a longer term hold versus, you know, multiple hurdles that are really then you get into more of an IRR driven yeah. uh, uh, mindset, which, again, is is not how we like to think of these things. So I try to simplify the waterfall. And in some cases, it means I'm going to make less. But what I have is peace of mind that. I'm not my our interests are aligned and we're in this for the long term. And so usually we'll have, you know, we'll crystallize the promote, so to speak. So we'll we'll lock in a value uh, after we've built it and stabilized it. And then, you know, adjust our ownership percentages based upon that and then continue to own the asset after that. It's just, you know, parapasu based upon what we own the asset. And we're putting in more capital in our deals. So, you know, in most of the cases we're buying the land ourselves. So we're putting in 100% of the capital. When we bring someone in, we might put in, you know, 25 to 30% of the equity. So because we believe in our deals, you know, I'm not buying it unless I believe in it. Sometimes when you get into an institutional world, people do a deal because they can capitalize it. To me, that's, you know, not right. a, that, that that's not how we look at the world. I look at the world as like, am I going to put my money up and risk it on this? And if the answer to that is yes, and the returns of the deal are great, then why wouldn't I put in more capital than say a 90-10 deal where you know the LP is only looking at me to put in five or ten percent of the money. 
So on these new deals where you're pivoting and doing some more family office and high net worth individuals, how are you unlocking some of that liquidity along the way? Because it's great to never sell anything, but as a developer, as a real estate guy, you need cash to go do the next deal. So how are you finding the ability to unlock some liquidity while also holding things for the long term? That's a really good question. So the re- the reality is, uh, and this goes back to your earlier question about you know the alignment of interest with institutions and and the type of capital. So fortunately, both Nitin and I have had a, had a great run, and we're partners in everything. So we talk about Miami World Center. I talk about deals that where I was more the principal on. He and I have always been partners in everything. So everything he did, I benefited from, and everything I worked on, he benefited from. So we fortunately had some success along the way, and we're able to build up capital to where we can go and afford to leave capital in these deals, you know, for the long term. Of course, there's a limit to that. <laughs> but as I mentioned, our, de- our 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 shop is also limited in size in the sense that we don't want to do every deal. We want to do the best deals. We want to be a, more selective. It's the reason we haven't raised a fund ourselves because, you know, while we've both been in the fund business, I mentioned mine, which is a little bit, you know, more high net worth driven. He was a partner in in private equity fund, real estate private equity fund that ended up with like a billion dollars, I think, across a couple funds. But it just becomes a different mindset. You you have to do you do more deals. Your return thresholds go, I think, go down. For us, if we're using our capital and we know we're going to leave it in long term, we're going to be more. We're going to be a little pickier, and we're going to save uh, save that capacity, both time and capital, for the higher return deals. And so we we're just more selective, but we're fortunate. We've, we've had good amount of capital. We've had deals turn where we've created some value and some wealth that we've been able to so far keep up with our, our pipeline. What are some of the st- mistakes you've made buying land? <laughs> I'm, I, uh, I think all developers are optimists. They have to be to be Always. in this business. So, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, Dania, I think timing has generally been the, the challenge. I've been a little early. Uh, in markets, believing that they would come back sooner and faster than than I hope. Now, in some cases, I was lucky, and and things came back much faster than I thought. So I've been I've been lucky the other way, but I've certainly been I, wrong in the sense of you know how long it's taken for certain markets to mature. And so, you know, but but again, that's part of the that's part of the business. You know, on land, knock on wood, we've been been fortunate that we've been able to we've been successful. In all of the rezonings that we've worked towards, and 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 that were part of our business plan. So from that perspective, we haven't made any mistakes, so to uh, speak. But that's because we do a lot of due diligence, you know, before we go hard on a site. And um, so I'm designing something. I'm in, I'm meeting with the the neighbors, the politicians. I'm making sure people want the deal, not just do I think I can get it approved, but do people want it? Because along the way these things take time and neighbors can change and politicians can change. But if the community wants the deal, then, and it's a good deal, then along the way that that sentiment should hopefully stay there. Are you trying to not go hard on a site, not buy a site until you have entitlements or you know that the entitlements are there right when you close? Or are you willing to take the risk in certain markets? We're definitely willing to take the risk, but it's a calculated risk. So most of the sites I bought have gone at least gone hard, in many cases closed well before we've gotten the entitlements. But I've, like I said, I've done the due diligence and feel good about it. That's, But it's also a lot of times that's, 
you know, a function of the price of the land. So if I'm getting a, the benefit, I'm not going to pay the landowner for the entitlements that I hope to get because then then uh, that, that just, to me, doesn't make sense. And a lot of landowners expect that. And quite frankly, some people maybe are willing to do that. That's not that's not our philosophy. We're more than happy to take the risk. We're more than happy to do the work. But, you know, we want to be compensated for for that risk. I bought us. I had a site south of the river where I had an institutional partner. They did not want to buy the site unentitled. It was a really good deal to buy it unentitled. So they said, hey, I'll come in with you and we'll capitalize it when it's entitled and we'll capitalize it at a higher value. I said, okay. So I went and bought the site, entitled it and took that risk. And then I was willing to put it into the venture at, at a higher number that was agreed upon. That was still a discount to the market, but was higher than I bought it for. And that was the deal. And, and you know, we were ready to go and then uh, COVID hit. And so the deal ended up not happening. They could have closed on the land at that point with me at the discounted number, but still higher than my basis. And we could have rode out the, the turbulence together. They chose not to do that and kind of left me holding the bag solo. But that's the risk I signed up for. I didn't know pandemic was coming, obviously, but it is what it is. Ultimately, I sold the, this land for more, was able to roll that money into another site that ended up being a two-tower site, and it all worked out. It all sounds great now. <laughs> but uh, I can tell you there's a lot of sleepless nights in between and there's a lot of gray hairs on this head as a result of that situation. But again, that's that's what we sign up for. You know, I mean, that's that's there's there's definitely risk in our business. But, you know, if we take that risk and it works out, we should be compensated for it. But it goes back to location. I mean, you're like south of the river. That's a very in Fort Lauderdale, a very prime area. Now, COVID for a couple months there was scary, but then Florida started ripping. So it worked out well. Things work out. It uh, it worked out. But, you know, I was out there pitching south of the river for a while. <laughs> just like, you know, we bought the land in Pompano in 2000, 2011. And so I was like the guy on panels pushing Pompano, you know. And then, <laughs> and then once Pompano got rolling, you know, I bought Dania. So then I was the Dania Beach guy, you know. And uh, and then south of the river, you know, I had to had to push that. But and so, you know, part of that is, you know, you're, we all sell our own book. But at the, all those sites, like we closed on the land. Like I took the bet. It wasn't like I was tied up and trying to sell someone a dream. Like I took the risk in each of those cases because I believed in it. You know, I believed in each of those sites. I believed in each of those markets. So I was willing to 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 do that. But at the same time, you know, in real estate, you can't do it all on your own. You need right. friends and, uh, and, you know, peers around you to create a sense of place. And so, so you got to convince others of the same, of the same vision. Well, I'm grateful for you because you're building two massive towers <laughs> next to a hotel that I own that was desperately in need to get these crappy buildings knocked down. So thank you very much. You're not still mad at me about my joke about extending the Greyhound lease? No, no. There was like a Greyhound bus station across from this beautiful hotel that we owned and it was a disaster. And then Dev came along and bought the whole site. And actually, when you knocked down, it was a paint store, like a Class B industrial and then this bus station. When you knocked it down, you really realized the value of that site and the purchase price was good and it's going to be a great amenity to the neighborhood well i'm, I'm glad you're you're still positive I, maybe well we until tell you everyone. start vibrating <laughs> and the host, and the guests like start that's complaining over. but that, yeah that's over that was one that's week good. yeah but when i called you to tell you that i was terminating the bus lease which was a good news <laughs> I decided to play a joke on you, and instead I told you that I extended the lease and how good it would be for your hotel because those the the visitors to the bus station would be coming over for coffee and 
you were not happy with me for the, no, that moment. There was uh, like there was 30 seconds where I was on the phone where I was like, is this guy fucking joking or is he serious? <laughs> like I I don't know. You know, I had to have a little fun with it, you know? Like, it, it was I knew a, you would be happy. So. It, it was good. It was good. You and your brother have deep ties to Fort Lauderdale and Miami. But if anyone's taken a drive up the beach, frankly, from Fort Lauderdale to Melbourne, you see like old Florida sprinkled in there, where it's probably like the days of your family's motel on the beach. And it's just like, this has got to be gold waiting to get developed. The problem is, I think these older landowners or condos know that they have some value, but buildings are knocked down at 60 years old. How are you thinking about investing in other parts of Florida and finding the next beachfront destination? Yeah. So look, we love the Space Coast up in that area, and we own a few assets uh, with with uh, hotel assets uh, with our partners up there, and we'll do some development up there. I think it all pretty much fills in over time. When you think about Florida, Florida has not been around that long. You know, really people, you know, AC was invented earlier you know, in the yep. middle of the 19th, or 20th century. So like we haven't been really developing until since like the 50s, maybe 1950s or something. That's not that long when you think of a market like New York that's, you know, centuries, been developed over centuries. So I think that everything fills in over time. And so, but the question is when and, and how long does that take? So we're, we look at stuff and say, okay, we're willing to wait, but how long do we want to wait? If it's got cash flow, we'll wait longer. If it, if an asset doesn't have cash flow, we might be willing to wait less. So we're looking at markets that we think are sooner to mature or kind of go to that next level than like, you know, three or two or three cycles out. So we're definitely looking at that. We're also looking inland. We bought, uh, we have an apartment site in Ocala because we look at the job growth that's going on there. And also it sounds crazy to say, but the traffic around Orlando is causing people to live further and further out. So, so we really like that was a market that we felt was, was prime for, for um, some more class A multifamily. But really, we, we were, we're always site specific. We look at, like I said, visibility and traffic flow. What's the right asset type to go there? And then when we think that that project becomes viable, it doesn't have to be viable today. Usually, if it's not viable today, we're getting a good deal, better deal on the land because we're not competing with the merchant guys who are going to pay more to get a shovel in the ground, you know, right away. But that means we have to take risk. And, and, you know, we bought, Fort Lauderdale Beach in the mid 80s. We, you know, right now it's great. You know, Four Seasons, our last deal on the beach was kind of the pinnacle of, of the tran- that transformation. And, and everyone's like, oh, you guys are right. Well, we bought in the 80s and we, we finished, you know, in 2021. <laughs> so, you know, it was, a, it was an overnight success over, the, you know, 30, oh, yeah. 30 plus years. But, you know, but again, we're, we're willing to, to, to take that risk when we think it makes sense and wait longer. But now we're expanding into other markets outside of the state. Think you know we're doing something out in, in Telluride in uh, in Colorado. We own a big portfolio up in Atlanta, so we're looking elsewhere. But eighty percent of what we do and spend our time on is really here in South Florida. You guys are amazing local developers. One of the reasons is you have these local connections politically, socially. How do you mitigate that risk in Telluride or Atlanta? So in in Atlanta, we didn't develop. We we bought existing, so we didn't need necessarily need that. Although the political naivety about you know some of the things going on in Atlanta have impacted our our assets, so 
would have been better to be more knowledgeable of the politics there, but we didn't necessarily need that for our business plan or for the assets we were acquiring. In Telluride, I spent years going out there and meeting not just the, the politicians, but the town staff, the neighbors, you know, other business owners. So I spent years working on that before I even, you know, put a contract on the site to be able to then start the entitlement process. So there was years of groundwork. And and again, it goes to politicians can change, you know, as elections come, neighbors can change. And so it's not, and, and we want to be there for the long term too. So it's not just about the project for us. It's it's about, you know, being being embedded in that community. That's how that's part of our mindset. So to your earlier question, like what did we learn growing up? You know, we lived in the motels that we operated, as I said. So we were part of the community, not we didn't just own a business there. We were also residents and lived there. And so we knew our neighbors and, you know, we knew challenges they had. And so or challenges they might have as a result of our project. And so we were willing to redesign certain things to to help them or timing wise work with them. So, you know, for instance, I'm doing my piles across the street from you in the middle of summer. The dead says, I guess. September would have been a little better than August. It was fine. But at least it's not in, it know, was fine. in February, March. So, but, you know, it's just, it's knowing that community because we're not just a, a property owner. I mean, we, we look at everything as we're a neighbor because we are. And, and you know, we're going to own that these assets for a long time. And we're going to be working with our neighbors and they're going to be asking us for stuff and we're going to be asking them for stuff. And so, so we, we always take that time to, to learn that just because we feel like it's it's the right thing to do. And that's just the nature of, I guess, of how we grew up. So that's how we always look at things in that with that mindset. So I don't know if you publicly announced Telluride yet, but I think I know what it is. So when you meet with different hotel brands or brands in general, how do you think that that impacts a project, particularly in a market like Telluride, giving it momentum to actually get done versus if you're just to go kind of independent. I mean, look, in certain certain deals, as you know, on the hotel side and certainly on the residential side, brands can significantly help. And in Telluride, it's it's public. It's it'll, it's going to be a Four Seasons. You know, they were tremendously helpful in you know bringing the confidence of that market. You know, politicians seeing the brand, getting to know us, but also knowing that we have the brand partner in there. They gave them a lot more confidence in the project. This is a property that's been tried to be developed since the 90s. And a funny anecdote, you know, I was told by the developer of the mountain that Izzy Sharp, who's the founder of Four Seasons, actually yeah. worked on a project on this site in the 90s because according to him, Izzy's son was the lifty at Telluride because he loved to ski yep. and loved the market. And it didn't work out. And I don't know if it was timing or politics or, you know, financial, but it didn't work out. So here I am coming, you know, a couple decades later and of course, the market's matured and there's better lift and access now. But, you know, trying to do the same deal that the founder of Four Seasons tried to put together. So there it was it was a key component of making the deal work. We're also, as I mentioned, selling residences. And so we think having that brand associated with it will help with our velocity of sales. And, you know, when you think of cycles and real estate, as you know, like when they end, they end fast, they end hard and you don't know when they're coming back. And so having velocity of sales in a condo project to make sure it gets out of the ground is important. And we think the brand will bring tremendous value in that regard. Do you have a partner in that project or are you doing it solo? 
Yeah, no. So we I brought in Fort Partners, who we developed the Four Seasons here in, in Fort Lauderdale with. And I did that because my partner there, a guy named Adim Ashi, also family business, you know, does a lot of large institutional size deals, but you know, it's run by him and he's got works with some of his brothers. And so we we have a similar mindset. But in Fort Lauderdale, when we met, he controlled the rights to Four Seasons. It still does on basically the east coast of Florida. So I couldn't have done the deal with with that brand without him. And when we started out and met, he really wanted to do it on his own because he had other partners and kind of and he owned other assets without me. And so he didn't want to, you know, have any conflicts. Perfectly understandable. So I didn't want Fort Lauderdale to lose out on the having the Four Seasons brand. So I was willing to sell it, but I really my preference was the partner. And ultimately, as we got to know each other and we had to convince Four Seasons that Fort Lauderdale was ready. And and as we we're going through that process, we we got along and he said, you know, let's try to make this work. And so we did. We shook hands. Uh, we now built the building. It came out great, you know, set rec- all kinds of records in terms of ADR and and price per square foot. And so it was very nice for us to have been able to stay in and 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 stay in as a partner. And I think we added value as a local partner. So um, and I think he, w- he would certainly agree to that. So it was just a good partnership. So when I was working on Telluride, we were doing it on our own. Uh, it's a very big deal, but I saw some value that he could add as well coming into that with with us. And so I invited him in on the same terms, on our basis. And so, you know, we shook hands on that. And, you know, now we're doing that and breaking ground next year. And that was, you know, three, four, five years ago before COVID. And we had to get through COVID, put the deal. I call the deal Humpty Dumpty because, you know, I had it on the two yard line pre-COVID. I started working on it in May of 18 and then COVID hit. And so, you know, Humpty Dumpty fell off the wall. Uh, you know, next thing you know, I'm back on the 50 yard line. I got to put it all back together and get it across the finish line post COVID. And, uh, but through that, he was a you know, great partner and again, right mindset. And so we're doing that together. So when you're putting that deal together, you could obviously speak to any of these Mountain West developers or West Coast mm-hmm. developers. What gave you the comfort to work with Fort versus someone that's built in the mountains before and has sold in the mountains before? I think it's just because, again, we I, we knew our mindset were similar. I didn't know this about my partner, but he's been going been going to Telluride every year for the last thirty years. He's a huge skier. I'm not. I blew out my ACL skiing <laughs> on a due diligence trip. So you're going to uh, be like manning the bar, or what? You're yeah, going to be yeah, I'm, I'm the bar? much better at operate ski than I am at actual skiing. <laughs> okay. So, um, but he had a true passion for the market, and honestly, like to me, there was a lot of value in that understanding, you know, who goes there and the types of buyers. So, and, the, you know, we're hiring a, a construction team that has done a lot, has a lot of mountain experience. We, all of our consultants have a lot of mountain experience. So we built a team that can kind of fill in those gaps. For me, it was more about having a partner with the shared vision and, you know, kind of common interests. And like I said, I didn't need a partner on the deal, but he's a great partner and I'm glad, uh, glad we're doing it together. I'm happy for you. This seems like kind of one of those never sell bucket list <laughs> development projects. So congrats. It's going to be fun. Thank you. Still got to build it. You know, still, I, yeah, <laughs> but, you know, that's the pain. Then it's fun. Yeah. Like sitting at Opry. Yeah. I want you to break down the condo economics, whether it's in a hotel or out of a hotel for everyone, because people outside of South Florida, I don't think appreciate how much money can be made or lost in condo development based on how the capital structured like it's very different from developing a hotel or Correct. developing apartments yeah so 
in general, I would say the returns on a condo, if it's a good successful condo deal, should be at least 50% higher than an equivalent apartment deal. But at the same time, there's a lot more work that goes into it because you have to sell each and every in- unit. There's more risk because you're, you're really taking market risk to do your buyer's close. You know, can they get financing? How, how fast are you going to sell? Are you going to get your price points? So you're taking more risk. And then all, but on the back end, you're also paying more taxes. So you're paying ordinary income versus a capital gain if you're building, you know, a hotel or an apartment building. So, so risk adjusted, I think that the apartment deals, you know, are, are better. But in terms of a condo, but certain sites for condos work great. If it's an oceanfront deal, like we're doing in Pompano, 92 units, that deal, if, if and when it sells, should produce great economics. And part of that is because in, in Florida, we can use buyer deposits towards the construction. So what does that mean? In the last cycle, we would get a 20% deposit from a buyer for a condo. I say last cycle, meaning pre, you know, great recession. So kind of up till 08, you get a 20% deposit. So you sell a million dollar condo, you get a $200,000 deposit. You could use a hundred thousand of that towards construction, but you had to finance the rest. So it required a lot of equity and it was more risk because a buyer is by more inclined to walk from a 20% deposit. Now the market has shifted where we're getting deposits up to 50% of the purchase price. And so not only do we have more committed buyers, but they're putting more capital into the deal. That means that we're taking on less debt on the back end and less, so therefore less risk. And uh, you're putting up less capital on and, the front end. Hopefully putting right. up less capital. Now, all the capital going on the front end has to be either debt or equity when you're buying the land and doing all the entitlements, selling the units, paying commissions, because you can't use the deposits for soft costs like commissions or architecture fees or some for the most part, it's just easier to assume that you can't. So you're, pu- you're still putting in a lot of equity, but yes, you're putting in hopefully less equity than you were under the the previous model, and you have better, more committed buyers. That being said, it's also harder to find guys that can put up or, or are willing to put up fifty percent versus twenty percent deposits, and so you have to be know that you feel confident that you're going to get those types of buyers in the deal. So I always say, if if it works out a condo development should have higher returns because of all those risks that I just mentioned. But on the back end of that, you're also paying ordinary income on that on those gains, which are obviously pretty much double what the, the tax rate would be on a long-term capital gain. And so you need to take that into account as well. And the tail risk of getting sued for bad construction, which Correct. is kind of the a five, given five, here. Five claims that we have. So, right, so you have that tail risk now, look, if you have a good GC and you built a good product, you're still going to get chased because the lawyer's going to convince the con association to chase you. And, and in some cases, they're legitimate. Uh, in many cases, there are less legitimate claims against the developer and the contractor, but that's part of the business. So you've been through a couple condo hotel developments. What do you think are important components of like the structure? Like are these things put back into the hotel? And then what are important components you know, that you're looking at in Telluride from an amenity standpoint? So I think if you're doing a hotel and you have condo hotels and you certainly want buyers that are going to put it back in the pool, those tend to be the happier buyers because they're getting a return that's carrying their their second or third or fourth home, offsetting their carry costs. So they tend to be you know happier along the way. 
but we're doing projects now that are essentially similar to condo hotels, but without a brand. And you can Airbnb them yourselves. We call it flexible living. We really kind of created the concept when we did the Gale project, which is the the project we did on the beach. Coincidentally, that was the project I referred to earlier that the my Canadian investors bought outbid me on. And so I ended up getting as, back in. I ended up they asked me to come in as a partner with them and and do that deal as a as a carrot to then doing the other stuff with me. By the way, that was the deal that I totally effed up during COVID because Dev I, brought it to me on a silver platter and I'm like, I'm not buying a hotel during COVID. No way. I'm doing these prep deals. This is great. What do I need to buy this hotel? Every time I drive by that thing, I'm like, why? Yeah. And then my buddy bought it and flipped it to a REIT and Yeah. That was yeah. fun. Yeah. Hey, think about how I feel. You know, <laughs> yeah. I did all the work, and your buddy made all the money. So, uh, no, we we did we, we did well. But it would as a passion project. It was a it was a great asset, and we would have loved to have owned it with you long term. Say lovey, he yeah. took the risk, and he did well. The next but, one, but we created in that project in the condo component, we created this what we called flexible living, which was you could put it in with the hotel and rent it out to the hotel, or you could Airbnb it. And because it opened without the hotel being ready. A lot of buyers rented it out directly and they chose not to put it with the hotel. They liked renting it out themselves because they could then stay there whenever they wanted. They had flexi- really flexibility in, in, in how they used the asset. And so we're doing a lot of that product in Miami. Right now, we have two projects that are both sold out and under one's under construction, one will break ground next year. And we're selling those condos to buyers that want exactly that. They want the flexibility to use it. Um, so you have to know the buyer, I guess, my point, because certain buyers, I think, want the amenities that come with the hotel. They want the ease. They don't want to deal with Airbnb or third-party management. They want to just hand it over and know that it's going to get taken care of and headache-free. And uh, and some people want like that headache or they want they think they can get better returns or they want to use it and they want to be flexible in how they rent it out. So that's an important component when deciding are you going to brand? Are you not going to brand? Are you going to bring in a hotel flag or sell a condo hotel that somebody can rent out on their own? In Telluride, where we're absolutely, you know, they're, they're within the brand, they're within the hotel. What we found with the four seasons that we've done is that that buyer very much wants to be in the rental pool. They, but they also want to be pampered like an owner when they come and they want the services and they want the pride of ownership. They want to know that they've, stress-free, hassle-free ownership, but also getting the benefit of that revenue. And so, you know, in Telluride, we're providing a product that really just doesn't exist in that market. And I'm talking about finishes. I'm talking about ceiling heights, talking about services. We're not overdoing it with the amenities because what we found is that, you know, that luxury buyer, they don't need, you don't need amenities that you're not going to use. You want the amenities that you're going to use, but you want them to be the best. You know, you want the best service, you want the best finishes. And so so that's really where we focus our time. So we'll have a world-class food and beverage. We're ski in, ski out. So we'll have a world-class, you know, operation around that and, you know, uh, around, you know, the lockers and and how you're treated and, you know, someone to help you with your, put your boots on and take yep. them off. You know, the, the, worst, best. the worst part of skiing you know, is getting those boots <laughs> off. So that's, you know, those are the types of things that we focus on. And also, you know, not, we don't want to be too in your face with it because that market isn't an in your face market. The people right. that go to, to tell you ride, they want to be a little bit away from the crowd. They don't, you know, it's kind of understated, you know. It's it, the unaspen. What? 
on Aspen. Uh, it's it's different. It's a different yeah. demographic. And yeah. many people say that uh, that Telluride today is really what Aspen was like 30 years ago. Yep. And I think they're both great markets, but they're different and you have to recognize that. So I think if we built a product that was more specific to Aspen, it you know, wouldn't resonate as well with with the locals and and the the demographic that goes to Telluride. What are your views on kind of the shadow short-term rental economy, but also like the the Saunders of the world. There's a, um, I don't know if you're still in the deal, but there's a Saunder here. And I've heard that the resonances in a building aren't really liking the transient nature of like a Saunder also in that building. Like when they're at the pool or whatever, they don't know the people around. What do you think the life trajectory is for those types of businesses and also kind of the STR economy in Miami? So look, there's definitely a transient component when you have someone like a Sonder in into your building and, and, and the transient nature has pros and cons pros being that, you know, you get different demographic, you get to meet people from all over. So it's kind of nice if you're, you know, social by the pool and you want to just kind of meet and, 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 and see new people. The downside of course, is that it's harder to build a sense of community when you have that transient nature. It also can be, a little more disturbing if they're checking in and your lobby's always full with people with bags checking in and out or the cleaning crews are coming in and out. And, and you know, so that that's more elevator use, more people in the hallways, that there's noise associated with that. So there's definitely pros and cons. I think the most important thing is that you're clear with your residents as to what's going on. And if you're going to have a significant component of, of that in a residential building that you're designed in a way that where the the permanent more permanent residents can kind of feel that's not impacting their enjoyment of the space and the you know their quality of life. Are you exploring that in any of your developments where you're going to have like a short-term rental side of the building and a more long-term stay side of the building but combining the uses almost like a extended stay with a traditional multifamily? We're we're not. I mean, we do contemplate that when we look at certain deals. It just turns out that what we have now in our pipeline doesn't lend itself well for that kind of mixed use component. But if I were to do it, I would make sure that I had either a separate lobby or a separate part of the lobby for the transient component, maybe have a different elevator bank or at least divide up the floors. So, so the, you know, the, those demographics are separated. You're going to have commingling when you do that in the gym, you know, in the amenity spaces, that's nothing you can do about. But there are certain policies you can have in place when cleaning crews can come in, you know, check-in times or check-out times. You can do certain things to try to mitigate some of that. And we would certainly do that. But right now, everything we have is either straight hospitality or, or straight residential. I want to bring it home with kind of like your approach and view on partnerships, because that's been a constant theme since you started the business with your mom and your brother. How have you found best to deal with challenging partners? Like, okay, maybe in the next deal, you won't work with them again. But when you're stuck in a deal, how have you found to deal with a partner that's very challenging? Look, I I think the, the, once you get lawyers involved, you know, then, then things are off the rails and it's, you know, you might as well like give up on any sort of like, you know, amicable resolution. So I always find, you know, it's better to sit down and have a conversation you can write an agreement as well as you think you can, as airtight as you think it is. But as as a friend told me, a mentor, so to speak, 
told me, I don't want to say his name because I don't, I didn't ask him if I could attribute this to him publicly, but, but he said to me, a big guy in, in real estate and construction, and I did a deal, a JV, and I was saying how happy I was with the a partnership agreement that it was airtight. And he said, let me tell you something. He said, you can never do a good deal with a bad partner. So I don't care what your document says. If the guy across from you wants to screw you, he's going to find a way to do it. And you're going to deal with that. And so, and, and he's right. So in, in, in that advice, I learned that pseudo the hard way. What it taught me was, you know, before you get involved in, in writing anything down and look your partner in the eye and, and just make sure that someone, not only that you want to like have a drink with, cause that you're having a drink and enjoying yourself and the times are good and you're groundbreaking and, you know, ribbon cuttings. But, you know, so, you somebody you want to be in the trenches with that, you know, that's going to sit there and not try to, you know, take advantage of you, but that's going to say, hey, we got a problem. Let's figure this out together. So that's the how I what I try to focus on when we do come to problems. You know, if that's who's sitting across from you, you're going to sit down and figure it out. And sometimes you come there. There are differences in philosophies. People are different differences in life, changes in their personal or business life or or. You know, so there's there's a lot of things where it doesn't mean the person's a bad person, but it can create a conflict between you right. and your partner. But if they're a good person, you're going to figure it out over a handshake. And you know, and like I said, once if you if you got if you try to you know point to an agreement and and you know and get the lawyers involved at the beginning, to me that it's that's longer, more expensive, and less ideal result than if you just try to sit down and work it out. I asked all the guests on the podcast the same closing question. And outside of your portfolio, what is your favorite hotel? You can pick more than one. The uh, the Six Senses in Douro Valley in uh, in Portugal, absolutely amazing property. I always uh, that's one where I always think back to place that I want to be back at. You know, I love Coral Sands over in Harbor Island. I know you're a Harbor Island guy, but as well, but you should check out the. That six senses. It's come up a bunch. What's so special about it? You know, the setting is amazing. It's you're right in the middle of the, the vineyards. It's very tranquil. You know, the pool is just simple, but it's uh, the view's amazing. But it just it's it's so it's serene. The property is beautiful. It's an old property, but it's been redone very well. So the rooms are spacious, and they're you know it's kind of got that modern tinge to it, but yep. not too modern. Yep. You know, so it's just a great adaptive reuse or, or renovation. Of course, Six Senses, so they got a great spa. Again, it's it's not like over the top in amenities, but everything that they've done, they've done really well. You know, the farm to table restaurant, grown a lot of the stuff is grown on site, which is common to that brand. So, but you get to like literally go hike through and, you know, see your vegetables before you, you know, have it for lunch. So the other cool thing is, uh, yeah, I went on a hike while I was there and you're like cruising through vineyards and, and it's much more like, casual there than say, you know, Napa where, you know, there's fences up. Yeah. So I end up on like a vineyard next door and, you know, I'm walking by and they say to me, oh, come in. Would you like to do a tasting? And I'm like, oh, I don't have my wallet. I didn't, you know, I'm yeah. sorry. I wasn't planning to stop. And, oh, you're, you're, you're next door at the Sixth Census. No worry. Like, just give us your room number. We'll let them know. And so next thing you know, I'm having, and I, I was there early. No other people, guests were there. So now I'm sitting here having wine with the winemaker, just chatting you know, and, and, you know, finished it up and, you know, then I had to go burn off the calories and walk <laughs> back. But, you know, it was just an experience that it was the culture around you too. That was part of that, that culture. So you just got a little bit of everything. It was perfectly done. I love it. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Enjoyed this. Thanks. Cool. Hey everyone. It's Jake here. 
Thanks again for joining me on this conversation. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Lastly, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Jay Warzak. I'll see you in the next episode. Jake Warzak is the founder and CEO of Dove Hill Capital Management. All opinions expressed by Jake and his guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Dove Hill Capital Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not reflect or represent real estate, financial, or investment advice. Mm-hmm.